before we dismiss the children, the children's church, and the other thing we just got up here. So I'm actually going to say we come up here and we need this moment. And before uh, Miss Maggie takes them downstairs. And, uh, you know, sometimes in the children's church we'll have 11, 12, 13 kids, sometimes we have two. But I just want you guys to just take a look at these precious little ones that are here. And just. the, and 
call it an illness, but countries that have decided that they are going to eradicate the uh, Down syndrome by aborting children that are diagnosed in the womb. And for somehow, and for some reason, people have thought this to be acceptable. We have, though we haven't gone that far in our nation yet, we have and have reached a point in our nation where we view life with such disregard. There is less concern for the sanctity and the preciousness of life than at any other time in our nation's history. And what do we attribute that to? It's really pretty simple. If we have turned our backs on God, as we have turned away from His Word and His application to our life, as we have sought our own desires and to be accepted in our sin, God has given us over to the outcome of sin. And that outcome is that reality that loss of the preciousness, the sacredness, the sanctity of life. The further away from God we get, the more sin infiltrates and destroys lives. In a figurative sense and in a literal sense, as we're talking about the sanctity of life and abortion and suicide and assisted suicide, mass killings, all of these things demonstrate the reality that people just don't value life the way they used to. And we know that it's not just, well, let's put it this way, we know that it's real, that's really just a symptom of the bigger problem. But the fact that we devalue life is just a symptom of the bigger problem, it's a bigger problem of sin, it's a, it's a bigger problem of turning our backs on God, it's a bigger problem of ignoring God's word, it's a bigger problem of allowing sin to have its way with us. I mean, if you think about where we are as a nation right now, and you think about all of those things that, that I just talked about, then it, it becomes pretty obvious that there, there has to be a, a deeper issue at hand, a deeper problem that we're, that we're dealing with. And even when we talk about the issue of abortion, a lot of times we get very we get very tunnel vision when we're talking about abortion. We know as believers it's wrong. We know that the Bible says that, it, that we shouldn't do it, and yet there are uh, contributing factors to the rise and acceptance of abortion in our nation that a lot of times we ignore because they don't fit the narrative that we've adopted and what we want to oppose. Let me, just, let me just break that down for you a little bit when we, when we consider the, the history of abortion in our nation. Of course, it was, in, it was the uh, decision of Roe v. Wade in the 70s that made it legal, but what, what brought to a head the demand for it? Well, it was the, if, you, if you think about it, there were, there were a whole lot of things, but we can point to some things in particular in our nation's history that kind of led us to that point, which has brought us to the point where we are now. Think about the, the sexual revolution of the 1960s. As people turned their back on what God said about sexuality, what God said about marriage, what God said um, ought to be 
of a sacred thing between a husband and a wife, when we threw that out the window, and promiscuity began to infiltrate our society, not, not just that it began to be practiced, but it began to be a demand for acceptance, so that now in our society, it's just accepted and expected that people will engage in sexual relations before marriage. When you think about what, what has that led to? Well, sexual promiscuity and premarital relations has led to an increase in the rate of divorce in our nation. It's led to the to increase in teen pregnancies. It's led to the increase of unwed mothers, which led to the demand for abortion. Because people want their sin, but they don't want the consequences of and that's, that's where we are. That's the journey that we've, that we've taken. And it's, and it's really, when you get down to the bottom of it, it's all because we have decided that we're going to ignore what God's Word says in order that we might pursue what we think we want. And the longer that we avoid facing the reality that it's not just... <coughs> It's not just the one issue. It's not, but it's the larger issue of sin. As long as we continue to ignore the fact that all of these problems are rooted in sinfulness and in abandoning God's word, we're never going to gain any ground. We're never going to win the battle. We're never, we're never going to see things change in our nation until we get back to doing things God's way. Sin is the enemy. And when sin is allowed to run its course, it brings forth destruction. It brings forth death. And this morning as we recognize the reality of this crisis, I think that we can move towards a solution. As we look to God's word, as we see what it tells us, of the preciousness, the sacredness, the sanctity of life as God sees it. And as we open our hearts to his instruction and to his revelation, and we ask for God's word to lead us to a place of repentance, and to a place of prayer, and to a place of renewal and revival, in our church, and in our nation. That's what the Lord wants from us. That's why we have this particular day in which we focus on the sanctity of life so that we can get back to understanding what God has said about the sacredness of life. I want to direct your attention this morning in that effort to the 139th Psalm and in particular, verses 13 through 16. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning as we read from God's holy word. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, 
and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we recognize first truth. It is your word. It is not the opinion of man, and it is not subject the errors of our own understanding. But it is, Father, your word to us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would, by the power of your spirit, open our hearts and our minds to receive it, to accept it, and to apply it to our lives. And we pray this in the precious name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. God has allowed it to bring 
glory to his name, then you have a foundation on which to build. And so we, we see, even in this psalm, as David is exalting the God of heaven, he is expounding on his attributes. He is talking to us about how wonderful God is, about he is the, he is the all-powerful, he is the all-knowing, he is the ever-present God. And, he, and David ascribes his attributes to him throughout the psalm, and in reality, what he's doing, he's really just fulfilling his God-given purpose for glorifying God. He's just demonstrating what it is that we're all created for. He's glorifying God and writing the psalm and exalting him and sharing it with us. And, and he's telling us about who God is. And that's really, that is why God creates us. God creates us so that he can be glorified in us. And because, because every life is created for the purpose of glorifying God, every life is precious in Palestine. So David begins in the psalm, and he, he talks to us, as I said, he talks to us about God's glory. He, he ascribes to, to God omniscience, that is his, his all-knowingness. If you back up into, into the first part of uh, Psalm 139, look at verse 2, he says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. Is there anything that we do that God doesn't know? No, he knows, no, he even knows what you're thinking. God is an all-knowing God. In verse 4, it says, Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. He's the all-knowing God. He is, he is the omniscient God. He's also omnipresent. That is, God is everywhere at the same time. There's nowhere you can go that God cannot find. That's, he's already there before you got That's what David says. Verse 7 says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold. God is everywhere. So, so David is just, he's just glorifying God. And then we get back to the passage that, we, that we're just looking at, we even see the, the, the power of God being on his place. He's forming David's part. He's, he's Excuse me. He's knitting him together in his mother's womb. He says, he says you, you have known me. He says, my frame was not hidden from you. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Verse 16. In all your book are written in the days that were ordained for me when his mother was now coming. There's nothing. If God can, can do this, if God can get together a, a person inside the, the darkness and the seclusion of a mother's womb, what can we not do? I mean, obviously we go back to Genesis and say, just God just, you know, we just got some dirt together and breathed life into it and made man. I mean, that, that's kind of hard for us to picture. It's sometimes hard for us to even wrap our mind around it. But we, we recognize the miracle. God's glory being manifested as, as 
David was scribing his attributes for God. And then we're also coming to the point and to the recognition of the reality that because God has created us for his glory, that we have a unique role and responsibility in this world because mankind was created to glorify God in a way that no other part of creation was. Did you realize that? So while all of creation declares the glory of God, we know that. The heavens declare the glory of God. Excuse me. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies proclaim His handiwork. We know that all of creation declares His glory. But humanity in particular was given the responsibility and given the purpose of glorifying God in a way that no other part of creation can. You go back to, to Genesis in, in chapter 1 and verses 26 and 27, and we see that in our creation, that we were made to reflect the glory of God by being created in his image. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth. Are you seeing something? That we were made to be above the animals. We are not just another animal crawling on the earth, but we were made unique among the animals. Because we alone were not made according to our kind as they were, but we were made in accordance with the image of God. And he goes on and he says, and you were close made the God created man in his own image. In verse 27, he says, in the image of God, he created a male and female, he created them. Since we are created in God's image, human life is categorically different and unique and special in God's sight, over and above the rest of creation. Because only humanity was created in the image of God. As we move on through the Old Testament, we see other passages that reflect this, this idea that we're created for God's glory. In Isaiah 43, 7, the Lord says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. It doesn't get much clearer than that when you look for God saying that we're created for his glory. He pretty much tells us plainly by being created in his image, by being made for his glory. He, he made us to magnify his life in particular, 
foundational to this understanding of Genesis 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse 6. And the Lord says, Whoever sheds man's blood, my man his blood shall be shed for in the image of God in the age. You see the direction there for capital punishment. A lot of times when we talk about the sanctity of life, people will get upset and say, well, you you, you say that life is sacred and life is precious and everything, but you're, but you're for capital punishment. I say, because capital punishment reminds us of how precious life really is. And that if you take another person's life, that you owe your life to Because that's what God has said. And that's the value that God has placed on humanity. He has placed the value of our life so high that it's cannot be replaced. Humans are not just another animal, but we are uniquely we are uniquely created and related to God who has designed us from the moment of conception. See, we're created for God's glory, but we're conceived by God's design. Look at verse number 13. David says, it is for you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's He's, he's forming, he's knitting together the, the, the child in the womb. And verse 15 says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully brought in the depths of the earth. Understanding that, that that imagery of being hidden together in the depths of the earth, that's really just a, a figurative way of speaking of the womb. It's a secret place. It's dark. No one else sees out of the sight of humanity, but yet God is working in it. And this is one reason why we believe in God, while we know that life begins at conception. Because God's work begins at conception. When he, when he creates life, he does it at the moment of conception. And there is life there, and it is precious to God. And, and that life of that child in the womb has been protected even from the earliest days of, of Scripture. In fact, in, in Exodus, as, as God is giving the law to Moses, he gives him the law that protects the child in the womb. And he says in Exodus 21, 22 and 23, if you see the scenario, it says that men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fine as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. So he says, if, if two men are in a fight, and, and the, the pregnant woman gets hurt so that she gives birth, but the baby's okay, the offender's only going to be held responsible for the injury caused to the woman. He says, but then he goes on to the next verse, says, but if there's any further injury, speaking of injury to the child, he says, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life. He says, if the, if the baby is born prematurely because you, because you injured that woman, but the baby's okay, then you're only going to be responsible for the injuries to her. But if that baby is hurt, you're going to be responsible up to his, even his own life. God has been protecting and his purpose to protect children from the womb from very early on. This has been his plan all along, his purpose. And so we're given that imagery. Unfortunately, as we've already noted, our society has, has so gotten away from God's design and God's plan and God's purpose and God's law that either we think this doesn't relate to us or it's not important to us or, or it just doesn't matter in, in the day and age in which we live because it's a different culture and it's a different time. And so 
so we think it doesn't apply, and yet God is going to hold us accountable for what we believe and what, how we enact and how we respond to his truth. But our society has rejected it, and our society has sought to make ways to make, um, to make it more acceptable to do what God says ought not to be done. And so when it comes to protecting, to protecting children in the womb, the, our society has decided, well, we're not going to call them children. We're not going to call them babies. We're going to call it what? What are we call it? We call it a fetus, right? Because it sounds detached. It sounds, it sounds like something that's, it's not really, it's not really a baby. It's, it's a fetus. It's just a tissue. It's just, it's, it's not really real. But you know, you realize that the, the Latin word fetus actually means little one. It means child. So even in our attempts to, to get away from using language that is, that is personal and identifiable, we still use language that, that identifies for what it really is. It's a little person. And every conception that takes place is the beginning of a human life and is therefore precious in God's sight. And that life from the moment of conception continues to be precious until God takes their last breath from them. From the moment of conception until natural death, God has designed us for His glory, for His purposes, and for a relationship with us. That's really what it all comes back to. We talk about God's design for us and God's purpose for us, and, and, and while we're created for His glory, we're also the, the way that we glorify God a relationship. And I think that's one of the reasons why life is so precious for, for the entire human life. Not only because we're created in God's image, but because God desires a relationship with us. And if God has a relationship with us, then we're his children. And just how would you feel if someone took one of your kids from you? We're precious to God. He desires that relationship. And that's why it's not just the unborn that are in need of protection. But as I said before, the disabled, the terminal, the aged, any that cannot protect themselves, all life is precious. Even, even to those that have rejected God, even to those who, who have opposed God, God still holds their life as precious until he takes it from them. Because there's still an opportunity that they might come to know him. Listen to what he writes to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 3, 3, 11. The Lord said, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. See, God desires relationship with us. And because we're created in his image, we're created for his glory. He wants us to know him. And we ought to desire to know him. We ought to be pursuing a relationship with him. We ought to be looking to his word. We ought to be seeking him in prayer. We ought to be submitting ourselves to his power and his understanding so that we might walk with him. Because we are his. Created for his glory. Conceived by his design. And consecrated for his purposes. Look with me if you will for your eyes will see my unborn substance, and in your will work all written the days that were ordained for me. When as yet there was not one of them. 
means he knows what's going to happen to you before you do. He has a plan. He has a purpose. He has a design. He knows, he knows what's coming. He, he worked it out. And while, it, while it's not always an understanding, bad things are going to happen in your life, and you're going to say, why did God do this to me? It may not be that God's doing it, but rather that God's allowing it. But in all things, God is in control. And he has ordained those things to come to pass. He has, he has, and, and, and listen, I don't understand that completely any more than you do. Okay? I mean, God's sovereignty over all things and, and, and the way that he works is beyond my comprehension. But you know what? He's God and I'm not, and I'm okay with that. And so, so but God has ordained our life before us because he has purpose for us. He has desire for us. And, and, and all of those difficulties and all of those hardships, the Lord is working for our good as his children. Isn't that what we see in Romans 8, 28, the great promise that God has given us? And we know that all that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. And what is that purpose? Well, we've seen it in part already. We've seen the purposes of God revealed to us as his we're, we're called to glorify him, right? We're called to a relationship with him. But as we go on into the next verse, Romans 8, 29, he kind of clarifies for us and shows us more precisely our role in fulfilling that purpose. It says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, listen, to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, God saves us in order that we might have a relationship with him, in order that we might glorify him, and how is God most glorified in us? He's most glorified in us when we look the most like Christ. When we look more like Jesus, God is most glorified in us because Jesus glorified his Father ultimately and perfectly and faithfully. And so if we want to glorify God, what do we need to do? We need to be like Jesus. Amen. And how is it that we fulfill that role? By obedience. It's not that difficult. Well, sometimes it is. Amen? I mean, obedience can be hard, right? The, the instruction's not difficult. It's the following up, right? But, but he tells us, he says, he purposes for us. He has consecrated us. He has set aside the days of our life in order that we might fulfill his purposes. And as we come to the knowledge of salvation in Christ, he saves us for the for the distinct purpose of reflecting the glory of Jesus Christ to the world around us. In order that others might come to know him through our testimony. That is the purpose for which God has consecrated us. Which he has set us aside, set us aside for his, excuse me, which he has designed us for. And understanding that just really brings us back full circle to where we began this morning in talking about the real root of the problem with people not valuing life. The root is sin. Sin separates us from God. Sin distracts us from our purpose. Sin detracts from the glory of God. Because of sin, we have turned away from God's word. We have stopped seeking God's will. We have sought to be religious without being obedient. 
We have sought to conform God to our image rather than being conformed to His. Our desires have consumed us. And instead of seeking repentance and forgiveness, we have sought justification for our actions that we might do things our way without having to feel shame or guilt for what we've done wrong. You know, it's not popular today to tell people that they're wrong for something, that their desires are wrong, that their actions are wrong. Our society tells us when you tell people they're wrong, like that, that's being unloving. If God is love, how can you even be a Christian if you tell people what they're doing wrong? You ought to be affirming them. That's not what God says. God says if we love them, we'll tell them what they're doing wrong. Because God promised that, you know what? We're all wrong. We're all sinners. We all have a problem with sin. We all need a Savior. And so if you just simply affirm people in their sinfulness, what are you doing? You're just, you're just making them feel better about going to hell. We can't just keep allowing the world to go on as it is. We need to stand for something. We need to stand for the righteousness of Christ. But if we just affirm people in their sin, if we just make people feel better about what they're doing and we don't confront them in the reality of their offenses against God, you know what we're really saying? What Christ did doesn't really matter. It really wasn't that important. Sin's not that big of a deal. Heavenly Father makes it different. He sent his son to die for those sins. It cost him his life. Sin is a big deal. Sin cannot just be weak. It cannot be just covered over. Has to be dealt with. You know how we deal with sin? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only way to deal with sin. Help people recognize their offenses against God and then lead them to the cross. Show them where forgiveness can be found, show them where hope lies, where redemption is. Christ came to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We're, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short. But Christ came to right our wrongs, to take away our sins, and to restore us to a relationship with Himself. And for all who truly repent of their sins and call upon the name of Jesus, His created for his glory. We have been designed from conception to be consecrated unto him that we might reveal the magnificence of his grace through the message of the gospel. And the gospel is the hope that we are given. It's the hope of redemption. It's encouragement. It's strength.
Thank you.